Sound. Sound. Music. Acoustic. Noise. Sound. I have a favorite sound, I think. Sounds. Ultrasonic. How they listen. Just a little. Boop. The one place where it sounds the best. You're listening to sound. Sound matters. <laughs> Just before we get started, have a listen to this sound. I should mention, of course, that you're listening to Sound Matters, a podcast about sound and things that matter, with me, Tim Hinman. It's brought to you by B&L Play. Now, here's that sound again. You probably don't recognize it, but this sound goes way back. Way, way back. Pretty much for all of us. All the way back to a time when we human beings were only just getting the hang of making something that we all take very much for granted now. Have another listen, and I'll give you a bit of context here to help you along. Try to imagine yourself somewhere in Europe. So long ago that Europe isn't Europe yet. There are no towns or roads or houses even. None of those for a few more thousand years. You are back in the Stone Age. You are a hunter-gatherer, deep in a primordial forest, wearing nothing but a rather fetching pair of fur underpants. Attached to a long piece of twine is a flat, elongated, oval-shaped wooden plate, into which you've carved some notches and lines with your flint tools. And you're spinning that flat piece of carved wood on a long string above your head as fast as you can. And that is what's making this sound. It's called a bull roarer. The sound of bull roarers can still be heard today. Bull roarers are still used in Aboriginal cultures in Australia and New Zealand. In Africa, North and South American Indians have used them. In fact, the bull roarer has traveled all over the world, it seems. Archaeologists have found many of these dating so far back in time that this sound-making tool could be classed, possibly, as the very first thing humans made that we could call a musical instrument. I say maybe. Nobody is certain. But this sound has traveled with humans for at least 20,000 years and probably an awful lot longer than that. So that's where we're going in this edition of Sound Matters. To a time before music was music. To a time when man-made sounds could allow us mere mortals to maybe hear the voices of the gods or hear echoes from the spirit world. Make us bigger and bolder than nature itself. To a time when the line between making music and making magic meant a lot more than just putting together your next Party Mix playlist. This is a story of long, long ago, when the world was just beginning. As usual, I've had help. Two experts in this show who've dedicated their lives to bringing sounds of prehistory back to life. The first is this man, Barnaby Brown. 
I'm Barnaby Brown. Barnaby Brown is a musician and composer who specializes in recreating sounds from long-forgotten instruments. I'm intrigued by the music of distant times and also the musical instruments of distant times. I suppose I try to bring them to life. We're going to start off with a 27,000-year-old piece of bone found in a cave. So this particular bone was found in Easteritz Cave in the Pyrenees. A bone flute. It's 27,000 years old. At least we think it's a flute. It has four finger holes. It has two clear-cut ends. Everything beyond that is speculation. When it was found, no one was exactly certain whether this was just a bone that had holes in it, maybe bitten by an animal, until they tried to blow in it. As with all things archaeological, context is all important. Objects didn't just exist on their own. They existed in a world, a complete world of a sort. So, context. We need to add a little context here. The flute was found in a cave in the Pyrenees. When it was made, the Ice Age was in full swing. There were woolly mammoths and reindeer running across the landscape. The people were hunters, and this flute was made from the bone of a vulture. No doubt, the world back then sounded different to the world today. And it seems it may be important to think about where the flute was found. It was found in a cave. It's possible that the reason it was found in a cave is that a cave was the best place to play an instrument like this. Caveman music might not have been quite as primitive as you might expect. Not, of course, that there's even a shred of evidence to suggest that any caveman could ever play as well as Barnaby Brown. We're trying to rediscover what these instruments might have sounded like when they were the most popular instrument of the culture at the time. Research has shown that caves with cave paintings and markings from this period often have powerful acoustic qualities or signatures. It's been suggested that the places where they painted the animals on the wall reflect in a way as to amplify the sound or change the quality of it. They may even make the sound sound more like the animals themselves, to the mindset of an ancient hunter-gatherer. These sounds may have had magical qualities. The sounds may have connected them to the spirits of the animals and the spirits of the earth, or maybe, most of all, to the spirits of their ancestors, those who came before. Now it's us that can connect to our ancestors. It's all pure conjecture, of course. That's where we have to use a lot of imagination, speculation and informed um, experimentation. But the Istalitz flute is not the oldest vulture bone instrument ever found. 
That honor goes to an instrument made 15,000 years before this one. Now, with a piece of evidence like this that is 40,000 years old, we really have to be cautious. There are many possible solutions, not just one. There are many possible solutions, not just one. Nobody knows exactly how this ancient flute was played, or if it was indeed a flute. What Barnaby Brown discovered one day was that when he attached a reed, just like a clarinet, to the flute, the sound changed dramatically. So what I've done here with an entire vulture bone is extrapolated what the instrument might have sounded like. I did try playing it as a flute, um, and I'm not convinced, because the finger holes just didn't seem to... Let's say there are a lot of finger holes that didn't have any effect at all, so I thought, well, what's the point of having these finger holes? I, I, I'm more convinced by the clarinet or oboe um, solution. It's hard to believe that 42,000 years ago the technology existed to create reeds until you hear the evidence. And I hope Barnaby Brown won't mind, but I've allowed myself a little artistic license and added a little cave sound. It does fry my brain that an instrument... I mean, I haven't moved these holes. These are exactly the positions that they are um, on the original. But that gives me three fifths, three pure fifths, um, which is effectively a, a modern scale. I mean, that's how we tune a piano. It seems that the hole spacings on the vulture bone flute from 42,000 years ago match the same scale that we use when we tune a piano. Of course, it may or may not have been that way. Nobody can be certain how they played them. We have to be cautious. Why that end? I'm going to take the reed out and I'm going to put it in the other end and we get a rather different scale. Reeds or no reeds, it's hard to know if it's true that this instrument sounded like this 42,000 years ago. Is it really conceivable that somebody back then could have had the knowledge and technology necessary to make such a musical instrument? So if you're eating birds or finding dead birds lying around, it's very, very straightforward to make a musical instrument. It's very easy to make, I mean, the bone because it's already hollow. So it's, it's extremely easy just to sort of break away. You cut a little notch or gradually, gently perforate the bone. They would have taken a bit of flint and lo and behold, you've got finger holes. I mean, they're pretty good. It's not long since the general idea of Stone Age people had them down as savage cavemen, barely capable of banging two rocks together. But add music, and you've already got culture. If we can hear the music, we can almost hear the culture. 
It seems we may have had that kind of culture pretty much as long as we've been around as people. Because that's the part that doesn't survive. That's the mystery. That's the key to bringing these tubes to life. Making that leap of imagination of adding reeds to ancient pipes may just change our whole perception of the whole history of mankind itself. There are not many men yet, just a few tribes scattered across the wilderness. This sort of thing is fairly new in the field of archaeology, copying and playing the artifacts, making a noise with them, making it possible to actually hear something that was heard back then. It gives archaeologists a lot more to go on, a more detailed picture of what the world might have been like thousands of years ago. So now it's time to move okay. forward in time to something a bit more recognizable as modern culture. I'll have to move a few things out of the workshop so we can actually get in. Yeah, we can come in if you can if you dare. Sound Matters own roving reporter Andrea Rangecroft is on her way into a messy workshop. I dare. Yeah owned by this man. My name's Peter Holmes. I describe myself as an engineer and a trumpet player. More than just engineering and trumpet playing, Peter Holmes is one of very few specialists who can actually rebuild ancient metal instruments. He specializes in wind instruments, horns, played by ancient peoples from the Greeks to the Romans, from ancient civilizations of the Mediterranean to the ancient Celts and beyond. We cannot imagine a world where we don't hear a police siren, an aeroplane overhead, a helicopter or a car going past or something like this. We have to strip those out and we have to imagine being able to sit alone and hear only our thoughts. Well, we can try at least to sit alone with only our thoughts in a soundscape a bit more reminiscent of, let's say, ancient Greece. Here we are lazing in the sunshine on an ancient sunny day. We can't hear anything. If you go back to the early times when the world was much quieter than it is now, the only really loud noises were the noises of thunder or the noises of an earthquake or the sea or uh, natural disasters like that. So there were things to be feared. Life expectancy in many of these societies was 35, 30 to 35 if you were lucky. So everything was governed by spirits, was governed by gods, was governed by nature around you. And instruments spoke to that nature, spoke to those spirits, and the voices were often described as the voice of gods, the voice of spirits. Things were able to modify the voice in such a way as to sound different and start to sound like different sounds. These were new sounds. These were the first new sounds. They were not the sounds of human beings. They were not the sounds of animals. They were not the sound of the sea. They were new sounds. This was the beginning of a new kind of soundscape. It's not easy imagining a world where musical sounds are a rare thing. Maybe some of these sounds were only ever heard in connection with religious ceremonies or battles. Not like the world we know today where music is everywhere, all the time, usually signifying nothing at all. One of the problems 
is that when we refer to these instruments, we use the phrase musical instruments, and that is loaded. The word music is loaded in different ways for different people. Everybody has a different concept of what music means. It might mean Led Zeppelin, it might mean Beethoven, it might mean anything to anybody. So in considering these instruments and considering the instruments of the past, we have got to rid ourselves of those concepts, those ideas and those preconceptions. The trumpet was a loud noise. The brass instruments were the loudest noise made by human beings. Therefore, there were things to be held in awe. You read things which say this was a poor musical instrument. But the word poor is really a very loaded phrase because it's poor in the context of, say, performing Beethoven on it. And a lot of these instruments were useless for performing Beethoven. They were not written for performing Beethoven. It was only later with the more organised civilizations, like the Greeks, Romans or whatever, that those sounds became into much more organised sound, which we would today recognise as music. And hence the danger of the word use, the, the, using the word musical instruments. The power of the word sound tools is, is quite, I think it's quite immense, it's quite important. Think of these things as sound tools, things that were creating a new sound world. Things that were creating a new sound world magical tools to increase the voices of humans, maybe bring the voices of the gods down to earth, at least scare the crap out of all your enemies on the battlefield. Peter Holmes' first project was to recreate what he calls a pair of Tutankhamuns. The very first instruments I ever made with a pair of Tutankhamuns in 1962. I made a pair for an exhibition and I decided to make them in the actual materials. By this he means replicas of the perfectly preserved trumpet instruments found in the tomb of King Tut. Someone who was worshipped in his own lifetime as a living god. This was the very first attempt at the silver one. This is sterling silver. And I got that very nearly there. And then I got a crack in it. You see, I got a crack there, which I tried to fix and couldn't. So I threw that away. Okay. <laughs> it's nothing to it, is there? It's amazing. Beautiful colour. It's lovely. It's beautiful it, copper it, colour. It was the nicest instrument I've ever made. It looked absolutely beautiful with this piece bronze, then gold, and then black, and then gold, and it looked stunning. It's the nicest thing I've ever made. It was so satisfying, you know? It took me 11 goes to make them. And under here, I've got a collection of dead Tutankhamun bells. I, I could never bear to throw them away. <laughs> <laughs> what was the sound? Uh, a bit boring, really. Uh, from our point of view, you see, that I, I gave you a musical answer there, a bit boring. 
Um, it's, it was cap the silver one was capable of a couple of notes. If you're a very good modern player, you can get three or perhaps four notes out of it. So how did they sound? 3,000-year-old horns belonging to the living god Pharaoh of Egypt, Tutankhamun. The trumpets of the Pharaoh Tutankhamun, Lord of the crowns, King of the south and north, Son of Bray. And so it was not a question of what's it sound like in musical terms. And people have analysed this and said it produces a D or a C sharp or something. It produces a sound. And it's the sound that has its value. And it's not just the sound that has its value. Because if I pick one up now here in my workshop and play it, that sound has no value. Put it in the context of a ritual where something is happening, everybody expecting the next thing to happen, then the trumpet sounds and then it happens. So it's this meaning that we lose. And so, after a silence of over 3,000 years, these two voices out of Egypt's glorious past have gone echoing across the world. I often think when I'm making things in the workshop, and I'm standing here in my workshop, which is one could describe briefly as a tip. Uh, it's quite a well-equipped tip. Um, but I often imagine one of these workers looking over my shoulder and saying, God, look at that idiot. <laughs> I could have made that in half the time. Peter's assessment of his own skills as a maker and interpreter of ancient instruments is very modest. Peter has made and reconstructed instruments from many cultures, never quite knowing how they're supposed to sound, how they were made, or exactly what they were used for. Recently, both he and Barnaby Brown, who we heard before, have contributed to the European Musical Archaeology Project which has set out to collect all the available knowledge and wisdom currently available about early musical instruments. Everything from drum kits made of mammoth bones to the flutes and reed instruments of the Stone Age to the refined and elegant sounds of ancient Greece and Rome and beyond. I think, as, as I've worked on instruments over the years, I've become more and more impressed by technology and by the techniques that people have used to make things and I've got to the state where if you showed me something from the Stone Age which had been very expertly drilled I would no longer be surprised. We've only got a fraction of what existed and our interpretation can only be based upon what we know what we understand and we have to realize the limitations of our own interpretation. Even if fractions of broken old instruments are all we have to go on, it has been possible to recreate many long-lost instruments. But once that instrument has been successfully recreated, it's still a very long way from knowing how to play it. Here's Barnaby Brown again. It's quite humbling to be dealing with an instrument where uh, you're suddenly a complete beginner again. 
and uh, and all those hours you've put in yes you'd like them to be sort of transferable but honestly you have to you have to take a step back and go back to the beginning start again change your mindset let go of preconceptions and that's the hardest thing i think everybody coming to ancient instruments carries with them cultural baggage of the 21st century your own 21st century cultural baggage is what makes you think the music you hear sounds like music. That music means something to you, and that thing it means to you is defined by your culture. Interestingly, my left-hand little finger hasn't been exercised very much. It's laying there lazily all these years. So give yourself a different set of baggage, and maybe you'd think differently. Both my thumbs and my left-hand little finger. It's hard work at the beginning, when you, when you don't have the answers and you're exploring, there's a lot of time wasted. Okay, now it's frustrating because I can't get them in tune. The, so that suggests to me that I need a thicker wire inside the bore. You want it to work straight away. You want to just compose music, well I do. Um, and you can't because, because the, the reeds aren't quite in tune. They don't quite behave right. And I, you know, I, I look forward very, very much to being able to, to pass on to the next generation of players something that at least works out the box. <laughs> I want to get rid of that wobble. Um, how do I do it? I've just got to experiment. They had generations of inherited expertise. Wizardry on pipes passed down in families of professionals, uh, whether they were shaman or, uh, or entertainers, uh, more likely priests. Uh, I mean, music was, it served all sorts of purposes and I think has done for, well, since Homo sapiens arrived in Europe. And, um... <laughs> That's my annoying alarm, uh, which I'd set to um, remind me to practice four times a day. <laughs> breaking in my lips. One thing we can assume, or at least I'd like to assume it. Whoever got to play those ancient horns thought they were pretty cool to be allowed to do so. And probably made the most of it too. Players of the Greek Aulos, for example, who got to accompany the entire Olympic Games, blowing their horns for all to hear and looking great while they did it. They were the rock guitarists of the ancient world. It was, it was popular music. Yes, it was also classical uh, and very refined. And you get all these wonderful reports of, of you know, um, the, the old guard condemning the experimental uh, avant-garde um, of uh, uh, the young players who were experimenting, adding more notes, going further up, and, you know, more octaves higher, or, or particularly their bodily gyrations. I mean, those are condemned. By, uh, by the more conservative um, Greek theorists. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to look back at these texts and see that really nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. We still meet up in crowds and hear music together, maybe not in caves or temples, but in concert halls and arenas. We still hope to be lifted up somehow by the music, changed by it. This is something we've done since before the start of civilization itself. 
if I was able to think myself out of the modern world for a few brief moments into a world where that all-enveloping sound was cutting off everything. It stopped me thinking of anything else. It, it, it enabled me to, to just disappear into the sound. If that had happened to me in a situation which was already highly charged, it was some kind of situation which had a ritual associated with it, um, it would have been, for me, a mixture of, I don't know, terrifying awe. <laughs> and that, that's all I can think of. And this remains a problem with the whole business we're doing in music archaeology, is we simply do not, we don't have a CD from the late Bronze Age. Of course, we don't have any Bronze Age CDs. Presumably most Bronze Age music came out on vinyl. But we do have real Bronze Age instruments, like Barnaby Brown's own favourite, some silver pipes from the Sumerian city of Ur, about four and a half thousand years old. I just love playing these silver pipes from Ur. Um, it's silver tube, diameter four millimetres, and they're like 20 centimetres long, um, and with a little cane reed. Uh, they just make an, an extraordinary amount of noise. Um, it's really surprising. What era are they from? Well, they're Sumerian. 2450 BC and uh, the other instruments found in the graves uh, are in the British Museum and in the Baghdad Museum uh, those lyres and harps uh, these were found in a private grave not in the royal tombs um, but they'd been destroyed they'd been bent um, and put in a little pot um, I suppose um, when the, the player died uh, they were buried with him but the instrument was destroyed as part of his burial in fact, destroying things deliberately and burying them was quite a theme in many ancient cultures, and musical instruments are no exception. For the ancient mind, objects themselves often had a life, and they needed to be broken and buried to give them a chance of being reborn or crossing into the next world with the person who owned them. It's not that unlikely even today that a musician might want to be buried with his instrument, the jazz superstar Miles Davis, for example, is rumoured to have been buried with a couple of his favourite trumpets. So just imagine the chances of these being dug up in 4,000 years. Who'd know how to play them like Miles did? When they could just as easily sound like, well, this. Most of the knowledge that is lost can never be recovered. But there are always lessons to be learned from the ancient past. We've largely lost our relationship with our environment. And I think um, if we look at instruments as, uh, or sound tools as an expression of this, this was a way of speaking back to the environment. And of course, when we talk about materials, um, the materials from which things were made were very important. The idea of the horn, of course the horn um, was a product of hunting. 
there is an idea that a lot of hunters had a great deal of respect for the animals they were hunting and they had to pay respect to them. If they killed them for eating, they had to then pay respect to the spirits. And there are some ideas that this is why sacrifice came about. So this was paying back to the environment what you'd taken from it. Yeah, and, and this again is an idea we've lost. We, we rape our world. We, we dig out materials and just use them willy-nilly. What do we do when we've finished with them? We tip, put them in a tip. Um, this is not the way the ancient world worked. And this is one of the difficulties for modern people to think their way back into the ancient world. And it perhaps would be a good thing if people did think themselves back into the ancient world, because perhaps they wouldn't be so wasteful. Perhaps they wouldn't want to throw things away. You can see I don't throw things away. I live in a tip because I don't throw anything away. <laughs> And that's about it for this edition of Sound Matters. I'd like to thank Barnaby Brown and Peter Holmes who made and played the instruments you heard in this show. You can find out much more about Barnaby Brown on his website, which is barnabybrown.info. And Peter Holmes you can find, along with much more information on the European Music Archaeology Project at imaproject.eu. The show was written, mixed, edited and generally reconstructed out of tiny artefacts by me and my name is Tim Hinman. Research and interviews in this edition were made by Andrea Rangecroft, executive producer and digital distribution master strategist for BNO Play is Nathan Businski. And it's thanks to BNO Play that this podcast is possible. You can find out much more about them if you visit boplay.com. That's B-E-O-Play.com. I'll be back again soon with more. In the meantime, if you like the show, please don't hesitate to share it or talk about it with your friends. You can also drop us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever else it is you pick up your podcasts. Until next time. Sound. Sound. Music. Acoustic. Noise. Sound. I have a favorite sound, I think. Sound. sound. Ultrasonic. How they listen. Just a little. Boop. The one place where it sounds the best. You're listening to sound. Sound matters. <laughs>